The next station is Westminster. Doors will open on the right-hand side. Change for the Circle and District Line. Exit for Westminster Abbey and Houses of Parliament. So, I mean, yeah, we're in Knightsbridge. So we, we could go in any direction. You know, it's a target-rich environment. When our target is what? Kleptocratic wealth. Wealth that has been stolen from people who really need it, by people who really don't need it, and spent on them in all these shops all around us on things that they don't need. This, this to, to your left, scaffolding on it, is Harrods. Quite a famous shop. It has a turnover two times higher than the entire British fishing fleet. So we're now walking down what street here? This is Brompton Road. We're walking uh, down Brompton Road. Um, yeah, so we're, we're um, I think it's Brompton Road. My mind has gone blank. I'm not actually a Londoner. I don't live in London anymore, which is why I have the suitcase with me. I have left. I have my, my Brexit survival plan. I now live on top of a hill with clear lines of fire. Um, <laughs> also, I wanted a garden. This episode starts with journalist Oliver Bullo giving me a condensed version of one of the great pre-COVID walking tours on Earth, the Central London Kleptocracy Tour he runs with a handful of other journalists and activists. It's a breezy, funny, but appropriately outraged tour of the highlights of London's great financial crimes, the way that the city, like my city of New York, has opened itself up as a cynical dark money haven for ill-gotten gains of prime ministers and pushers and pimps alike. The luxury goods market, Harrods, where much of this wealth seems to be spent on marmalade and caviar, is a particular touchstone for me. Anthony Bourdain, the former co-host of this show, held the place in special contempt. In fact, long before he died, he was on record saying that he did not want a public funeral, Instead, he just wanted his body to be fed into a wood chipper in Harrods at rush hour. Alas, I guess that was against CNN's repatriation of remains policy, and that's too bad. It was a pretty great idea, Tony. So instead, I'll sit down and drink with Oliver, one of my favorite journalists on Earth, author of Moneyland, the inside story of the crooks and kleptocrats who rule the world. He is an expert at plainly describing the complex ways that we're all currently being worked over by the shadowy billionaire economy. So Oliver and I met up at the Bankside Hotel last year and had something of a Slavic hard alcohol and snacks party. This episode originally came out last year only for subscribers to our previous platform, Luminary. I'm very happy to be able to reissue it now for everyone for free. And the issues that Oliver covers are all the more important now, as the billionaires somehow have rigged even this pandemic economy to their maximum benefit, as corruption investigator Alexei Navalny lies in a coma after being poisoned in Russia. We need Oliver and his work now more than ever. This is Nathan Thornburg, and you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. you to bring some vodka on the condition that it was cheap yeah well this this can i tell you why i bought this vodka this vodka this this is called glens it's a product of the finest russian distillery in scotland um <laughs> and but the reason i thought it was funny now, was wait because a second when i was living in moscow there was a period when some genius corrupt official involved in the alcohol trade managed to 
lose all the excise stamps. So for months there was no imported alcohol. The local producers had a complete monopoly and made a fortune out of it. But one form of whiskey that did mysteriously appear was called Glen Clyde. And Glen Clyde is just not a thing. It's like you've just got two Scottish words and added them together and made <laughs> Glen Clyde. But Glen Clyde somehow managed to find its way through this blockade and, and I was forced to drink it. Anyway, Glen's. Look, this is Glen's vodka. It's like the reverse. It is the reverse. It's come back to haunt you. Yeah, Although yeah. I, I'm sure there was a gleb behind Glen Clyde, <laughs> right? Think? I mean, Well, I don't know. I mean, who knows? I did actually look up Glen Clyde. I, I'm, there is a, a three-year-old expression, yeah. um, which... I think that's the least number of years you're allowed to, <laughs> to, I mean, to actually call it whiskey. Like, that's, that's like a child soldier in yeah. the whiskey wars. Yeah. But I got some zakuski as well, so we've got some um, dill pickles. They're, they're, these aren't Russian, because, but I went to a Polish shop, so they're Polish. Which, you know, apologies to Polish listeners, but from a London perspective, your, your, your pickles taste similar. Um, <laughs> we're, we're flattening all of Eastern Europe yeah. from a yeah. zakuski. So zakuski is a Russian word for snack. It's like... This is what you have to do when you drink. When you zakusit. Yeah. Do you take away the taste of the vodka with something which tastes marginally less bad? <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Nazdarovia. Yeah, yeah, yeah Nazdarovia. <laughs> mm. Oh. Oh, bloody hell. I think Glenn could do some more work on that. Oh. Jesus Christ. <laughs> no, have a zakuska. Yeah, it helps. If only a little. Oh, man. You know, this is this is uh, my inability sometimes to just be spatially aware of who I'm with and what's happening. I'm sitting across from the guy who wrote The Last Man in Russia about the fatal alcoholism of rural Russia and forgotten that, of course, you are not going to sit there and sip your vodka. No. No one, no one sips vodka. You know? I know, I know, I know. It's horrible. No one, no one drinks it for fun. You drink it to get smashed. Yeah. And it works. It's very successful. Smashing, smash vehicle. <laughs> A smash vehicle yeah. known as Glenn's vodka. Glenn's. God, that's really rough, isn't it? Yeah, that's tough. Glenn. That's like sitting there um, cutting up the back of my throat. I think we should do tasting notes. I'm getting, I'm getting antifreeze. <laughs> So, we're here in London, but uh, tell me about um, 1999, September, St. Petersburg. It was brilliant. I was a, a recent graduate from university. I studied history. I always had a bit of a Russia obsession. I think, you know, in the 90s, when you were stuck in mid-Wales, not, I mean, everything that was happening in the world was happening in Eastern Europe. It was so exciting. You know, there was this new wave of democratic transformation and there were wars and there was, you know, I don't know, all this fun stuff happening in the news all the time. It just looked so exciting. So I left university and I moved to St. Petersburg and I and I, I did work as a journalist, but not because I really wanted to be a journalist, but just because I needed to work somewhere. And my main thing was just trying to you know experience the transformation of it this is going to be like being in you know paris in the 1920s this is this is my hemingway thing you know when i'll be able to tell my grandchildren i was there you know and and it was i mean you know the st petersburg scar scene was unbelievable i mean it's hard to imagine now but the st petersburg gay club scene was just off the charts it was so fun and so cheap you know i was earning 200 dollars a month and I lived pretty well on that. 
you know, I mean, I rented a flat for $75 a month, and then I had $125 to spend, and that was fine. I got to go out, and you'd buy, you know, you'd go out and buy beer, or you'd go and listen to ska music. And what was amazing is you had all these, um, the horn section, right, where all these, like, classically trained, you'd have, like, an eight or ten strong horn section in, on a on a on a stage about the size of a table in the corner of a basement and and then they'd come up to do the horn section it'd be like being blown off your chair it was so amazing anyway St Petersburg was epic I loved it but just before I got there unbeknownst to me unnoticed by me because I was more interested in ska music a gentleman called Vladimir Putin who also was from St Petersburg became Prime Minister of Russia and kind of slightly changed the whole trajectory <laughs> of the place. So I didn't end up writing about democratic transformation over the next, however long, eight years when I was in Russia. I ended up writing about the war in Chechnya and, uh, you know, democratic reversal and all that. Well, and there was this kind of rueful note in your book talking about how 1999, as you said, sort of unbeknownst to you, like those moments had already passed. Yeah, I'd, I'd missed, I'd, you know, I was there, I'd missed the train if, if the train had ever existed, you know. And then the, you, I, I think the way that you wrote was like, and that what I ended up doing was spending about a decade experiencing paranoia and harassment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you did. I mean, it, not to say that, that the, the post communist thing was bad everywhere, you know, places like the Czech Republic and Slovenia are doing pretty well, you know, and, and um, but in Russia, yeah, I, I was. It was more about being followed by FSB officers and and strip searched and and having to pay off corrupt coppers, and less about cheering as a you know yeah. democratically elected president was sworn in. It was just all, you know. I'm not going to say it was depressing. It wasn't. It was brilliant. I mean, it was really fun. I mean, there's nowhere like Russia. It's just the most fun, glorious, crazy place to be. But it wasn't what I'd gone there to find. I'd, I'd found something else entirely, which was craziness and. And great friends and, and amazing travels and, and, you know, but tragedy, a lot of tragedy. A lot of darkness. Yeah. But I, it's kind of, I don't know, I don't know, maybe nobody else would give a fuck, but I do, I do sort of feel like I would like to see the definitive work about Russophiles and their disappointments. <laughs> well, it's interesting because people come to Russia in lots of different ways. So loads of people come to it via its literature. And I think maybe they're not as prone to disappointment. You know, because, like, let's the, face it. Literature is pretty fucking dark yeah, exactly. to begin with. You're like, if you've come to it via crime and punishment, you know, anything, <laughs> Good anything, luck. anything short of being right. bashed on the head with an axe, you're going to think is, is a win. You know? right. But but I'd kind of come to it, I suppose, via the, the history and via the politics. And also, to be honest, I'm being honest, I'd come to it via Tintin. You know, I loved Tintin and I was obsessed by Tintin. And this thing that, that you could go and wander around Eastern Europe and, and be the kind of boy reporter and beat the baddies you know I wasn't that I believed it but I did a bit you know I thought I'll be you know go to Borduria and and or, or, or go to Suldavia and prevent good King Ottokar being overthrown by the baddies whatever I, you know a little bit of me you know a little bit of me hoped that I'd have a quiff and be that guy with a dog well it's just I mean listen for anybody who's like we want to adventure yeah and like get into I don't know what would you call them shenanigans yeah a lot of shenanigans that was my goal you know, so I, I mean, you, when you're growing up in Mid Wales on a farm, which was wonderful, obviously, but and reading Tintin, look at all this stuff that's happening all over the world. You know, it's like, it's just you could insert yourself into events. 
I, you know, that was my plan. And actually, it came true. So Russia is is there and is, if anything, more momentous than the love-in that I thought that I would be getting, for example. you know. So I was there in 1990, which was the moment when everybody was just like, you know, handing flowers to Americans like they were, you know, soldiers returning from war. Um, even though we were just like a bunch of bullshit teenagers. And then I went back in 95 to live and found that, you know, my friend's uncle had had his throat slit while he was driving a gypsy cab. And uh, another friend was uh, hiding from the authorities because they were trying to send him down to che- Chechnya to, to die. Uh, another one had knocked up a underage girl and was uh, doing very poorly. I mean, it was just, it was like the, you know, the mirror had flipped and, you know, Chekhov was, he was always there for yeah. me, you know, like, uh, and and aspiring to, to read and understand that shit in the original was, was always going to drive me to some point, but the darkness was fucking real, you know, and I, I think as I talked to other people who were in that same mindset as I had been as a teenager, feeling like Russia was, you know, this place that would offer um, a very unexpected and, uh, you know, sort of high dose communal experience that uh, just, it didn't exist. It, it wasn't, that wasn't the story that they were meant to play. So I, I think that the, the Russia never really had a chance, to be honest. I think it opened up and, you know, Western well-meaning Peace Corps volunteers and, and NGOs and people turned up, but also some really quite cynical and clever bankers, accountants, and lawyers turned up. And yeah, these shady Harvard fucks that well, came and like yeah. helped well, Russia gut itself. Yeah, and I mean, and not only, I mean, you know, we, you know, from all over. And they turned up and they said, Yeah, you'd see that? You want to steal that? We'll help you do that. Yeah. And then once you've stolen it, we'll help you hide that so no one will ever find it. Yeah. And once you've hidden it, so no one ever find it, we'll help you use the income to buy yourself a big, big house in London or big I, house in New York. I'm talking to you, Larry Summers. You know, <laughs> Come, don't at me. But <laughs> yeah. no, I mean, but that, a, this is it, right? I mean, yeah. the, the point is that that they had this great opportunity, you know, to make Russia something different and more open and and kind of generous than it had been for so long and has ever been. And we, by we, I mean, you know, our two respective countries in particular, but not only, but mainly us, screwed them. We're like, you know, you know what? It's just now. Let's just take all the stolen money and invest it in yachts, and that's going to be great. And, you know, it's so disappointing. And it was this, actually, to be honest, what, what Moneyland and what Moneyland grew out of was this discovery, which was a discovery only to me. I mean, any relatively informed and person in, in Russia knows this. Is I that, should say Moneyland is your new book. Yeah. But it's just the, no. the, the realization that, that to the extent to which the, these assholes have, have ripped off Ukraine and Azerbaijan and Russia and all the other countries of the former Soviet Union didn't do it on their own. They had their hands held every step of the way by highly intelligent and well-remunerated Westerners. And and that story needs to be told and told and told and told again. Well, and I've literally had this conversation maybe four times in the last couple of weeks about people, obviously, you know, to to date this, this is uh, now we are a few days after the Mueller report came out on a Friday and, uh, you know, people are still trying to wrap their heads around what exactly is happening with Russia and the United States. Anybody who had ever had any questions about just the the vast sort of vague shadiness of that world, and particularly the, the you know the Manafort connection. Moneyland is is the thing that I'm like, oh well, this book will tell you what's actually happening. You know, it's not it's not like a it's 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 not a 
intensely stripped down black and white like here's the bad guys here's the good guys it's not even that simple but it's some very opportunistic motherfuckers who are exploiting some very lazy laws to create an environment where um, you have you know access sold and real estate and all used to the point of kind of like government plunder there's such breathlessness in the United States right now. There's so many millions of headlines being written about, you know, Russia and collusion. What is actually happening is everything that's in Moneyland. Yeah, I mean, it's much worse. You know, Russia collusion is like a, it's like a James Bond plot. You know, that there is somewhere a, a big room with a with one of those big high backed black leather chairs with a dude in it with a with a white cat and he is to blame for russia collusion right it's him him with the cat or if not the cat and that's not the case it's a it's a system which has been you know has come into being and has been very very profitable for a large number of people and and it is incredibly hard to think what you can do about it but it's this basically a money crosses borders freely without hindrance to wherever it wants to go but laws don't follow it. So basically, if you own money, you can pick and choose what laws your money lives under. And that is an incredibly obvious observation, but incredibly important and something that we don't discuss nearly enough, which is that us normal people, you know, you and me, people who, who don't frankly earn enough money to, you know, maybe even have a pension, let alone an offshore bank account, you know, we essentially financially live our lives under the rule of one government. But if you're rich to, enough to afford these, you know, the services of lawyers and accountants who, who can arrange it for you, that, that they live a totally different way. They don't have borders. Borders for them are barely an annoyance. You know, they're, 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 in fact, they're an opportunity because they allow them to pick and choose jurisdictions to be served in, in, in different ways. And this is the amazing opportunity that was presented to the rulers of Russia and the rulers of the other former Soviet republics after 1991. It was just, okay, yeah, you know, you've got all this money at your disposal. What do we say? We move that money to Jersey and you will never lose it again. And you will never pay tax on it. And what's more, it will be very profitable investment and you'll be able to buy loads of things with it. And who wouldn't do that? You know, there was a study I found the other day, which I should have found after the book came out, or I would have included it. It's a, a really interesting study of supermarkets. You have different kinds of supermarkets, some of them where there's a cashier and when you check in your goods and it gets scanned by a person, and other ones where it's, you scan it yourself on a machine, and they can do comparisons of the relative rates of theft, right, in places where there's someone checking that you don't just walk out with a bag full of stuff and someone where there isn't. And who would possibly have guessed that in the place where no one's checking, theft rates are like 10% higher? Really? Because it's a criminogenic environment. It's just saying, yeah. why not just fill up a bag with stuff and walk out the door? And this is the thing. If you make it easy to steal stuff, people will steal stuff. And that's what's really interesting about the Paul Manafort affair. Because, you know, I suppose that there, there might be an argument that corruption, that the sort of kleptocracy in, in Nigeria or Afghanistan or Malaysia or Ukraine is just a culturally specific phenomenon, right? That these places just people steal because that's what they do. I, but, I guarantee you that that's the, that's the image that people have yeah, in their mind. Of course it is. You know, they, you say, oh, well, they're just foreign and they, and they steal. You know, some people do it. But what's really interesting about Manafort is you take him and you put him in Ukraine and he behaved in exactly the same way as a Ukrainian politician, right down to the location of the shell companies he used to own the bank accounts that he spent money with to buy these frankly really ugly designer clothes that he bought and, well, these, you know, and these shitty condos. You know. Let me say, that motherfucker is kleptocrat from the crib. Like he, as you pointed out in, in the book, you know, he had bought 
uh, a brownstone in Brooklyn, which mm-hmm. is you know supposed to be a D class A, low key kind of rich, expensive place, and he had just like gone insane with it and you know filled it with like eighty thousand dollars of Iranian rugs and yeah. all of this stuff. So that style, it feels like he might be a transnational asshole. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's a, you know, he's an, and he, I mean, he's in up there in, in the first division of a transnational assholes. Yeah, I mean, because it's, yeah. it, but he, you know, the, but why he's so valuable as an example is he shows that, frankly, if you put someone in a situation where they can nick as much money as they want and hide it and, frankly, never get caught, because had he not got involved with the Trump campaign, let's face it, he never would have got caught. You know, then you're going to do it. Why wouldn't you do it? You know, you, you, if someone said to me. Here's a billion dollars, and you're never going to get caught. I'd like to think I'd turn them down, but I know quite a large bit of me would be like, a billion, you say? Yeah. And then you think about what you could buy with a billion dollars and all the good you could do, right? You know, yeah, because yeah, you'd be doing good with it because you're not bad like these other people. Exactly. I'm, you know? I'm the hero of my story. Exactly. Everyone is. No one's bad in their own story, you know, and that's it. And so all these people, who, you know, they're looking after their families. You always have to come up with some kind of justification. It's bullshit, but it works in your head, and that's it. So you nick the billion, and you stash it in Nevis or Panama or Vanuatu or wherever, and, and, and then you get to buy houses in, you know, on Central Park West. Win, a a total win. I I have to say we uh, we started with two quick shots of vodka. Yeah, um, feeling a bit flushed actually. I'm, but I'm watching the time on the recording, and I feel like we need to have intervals so yeah. we don't just forget that we're drinking vodka here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're at the 20 minute mark. I'm going to eat a zakuska before we have some more. Just yeah, to clear, yeah. my, clear my palate. Yeah. So I think we're ready to. Mm. No, actually, I, actually, the the, the gherkin is quite good. Yep. And I don't know a lot about audio, but I'm pretty sure two dudes eating pickles <laughs> that's, that's, into the microphone. It's radio gravy, it's, as we call it in this country. <laughs> mm. Or we don't actually. You lucky, lucky listeners. Yeah. Huh. And gravy doesn't exist here. What? I don't know why. Gravy didn't exist here. I don't know why. We invented you, gravy. Well, why wouldn't you call it? Oh, that's why you would call it radio gravy. Yeah, because it's it's like perfect mm. radio. We, you know, we don't, we, us Brits, culinarily speaking, we're not given much to the world, but no one's taking gravy away from us. <laughs> All right, fair <laughs> enough. But the, probably the French invented it, actually. It's probably just our word. I, I don't want to gloss over your first two books, which, in my mind, made you something of the poet laureate of our generation of russophiles like let our fame be great is an incredible book about a a terribly unnoticed and unloved in the literary marketplace i guess you know kind of group of people which is circassians primarily but the you know kind of caucuses in in a larger sense and it was the one that just kind of absolutely flipped my lid in terms of the depth that you can get to when you're talking about, I mean, the caucuses have gone through something that over the last 30 years that, that, that no people should ever have to go through and will be, you know, the, the stuff of legend in that fucking region for uh, a thousand years because it's just been so brutal and so, um, so uh, I think magnificently cruel. Yeah. It's horrible. All of the different twists and turns. 
Um, and then your second book, which is The Last Man in Russia, was about alcoholism as a lens through which to kind of, I guess, mark and define the dissolution, particularly of rural Russia. Yeah, yeah so alcoholism as a coping strategy. Mm. It's a bad coping strategy. It's an incredibly, you know, to be honest, um, it's my book, so I can say it. it's a pretty bleak book. Oh, it's super fucking bleak. <laughs> but in that way that if you were somebody who, you know, not to name names, but if you might have gone to Russia or found an interest in Russia because of crime and punishment, yeah. um, or if you had spent time, as I also had uh, in, in rural Russia, you would absolutely look at that and just be like, Yes, I get it. Like the 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 patterns, like the the absolute destruction of a social <laughs> structure that yeah. I always saw every time I left Moscow or Petersburg. Now totally kind of resonated through your book. Yeah, I mean the the, the Russians have been much experimented on, and the, the sort of collectivization, the, the the crushing of the Russian peasantry was, you know, one of the. I mean, it's not called an act of genocide in in Russia. In Ukraine, it is. It's referred to as an act of genocide. In Russia, I suppose, because it was perpetrated by Russians on Russians, it's it's you know, but I, you know, it, it it was one of the cruelest, of the many cruel experiments of the of the twentieth century. What was done to the Russian peasantry was just horrible. So I, you know, the book is about the aftermath. You know, what what happens after your entire society has been destroyed? You know, what happens to you? And and there's no acknowledgement and no recompense. You know, it's uh, it's it's pretty depressing. I mean, I I loved writing it. It was something I needed to write. It felt like my response to Russia. Yeah, I mean, and it is in a, you know, it's not, but it wasn't a commercial proposition. It's got to be said. I mean, it was a, it was a critical success. I don't, I think, I think my mum bought three copies, which is probably three quarters of the sales. But I, I have two copies in my bedroom. Oh, uh, well, still. there you go. I don't yeah. know why I have two. I guess one is a galley and the other one I had pre-ordered or some shit. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. It's, it, it, I, I think from my perspective, what I found really fascinating in, in rereading Moneyland yesterday was that you had made an arc between those first two books and essentially documenting different facets of extreme suffering. And there's also, there are bright moments and it's very, I mean, the, the writing is very light and humorous and it's not like, it's not like a dirge of a, of a book. I mean, these things are very entertaining to read. But what you said with Moneyland was that, you know, this was your attempt to, you know, really in a new way, figure out what the root causes of all this crap were yeah i mean some of the first two books were kind of describing what went wrong right just saying well hang on i'd gone to this place and was expecting to find sort of a glorious flowering of democratic freedoms and actually i'd found putin right you know what what went wrong and and you know so here's chechnya and then chechnya led me to looking into it and saying well actually this isn't a a one-off right this isn't a solitary act of extreme barbarity towards people in the Caucasus this is just one in a whole series and 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 why don't why doesn't anyone know about these places I mean there's a British pharmaceutical company called Circassia right which I only found out about it the other day which is weird because I'm the only guy who cares about Circassians and I found out about this and I was like why is that you know and I put on Twitter why the hell is this I couldn't find why it was called that why is it called Circassia and someone got in touch and said it was because it, it makes sort of um vaccinations and all that you know like preventative uh therapies and and there was a thing about that Circassian uh slaves were very popular in the harems because they used to vaccinate themselves apparently they had a folk vaccination against smallpox so they had very good um, complexions and you're like you've called your pharmaceutical circassia because they were the best sex slaves what the hell is that you know like i mean i mean okay that was pre i mean 
damn. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is the level of kind of ignorance about... Well, I'm, I'm sure they're corporate partners with the Janissary Weapon Company Yeah, well, this is something. it, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a bit, you know, you're like, well, I mean, what is this? You know, and sort of, can you imagine in... in I mean, it doesn't even... I don't even want to say what the parallel would be in 150 years' time, you know, the, you know, the ISIS. It's like... Oof. Yeah. I mean, damn. Anyway, so it's that level of ignorance about these guys, these people's plight. This is the first proper genocide in modern European history. And, right. And, 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 and not even ignorant so much as just a, a, a lack of interest and yeah. caring. Yeah, yeah. They may identify that like Circassians as such don't actually exist in yeah. the region where they came from and one might suspect genocide. Yeah, it's like, well, wow, well, weird that they all moved spontaneously from <laughs> Russia to Turkey. I wonder what that's about, you know. I'm sure that was entirely voluntary. So anyway, that was, the, you know, Let Our Fame Be Great, which, and that, yeah, so which, which is, and then The Last Man in Russia, which was kind of essentially, as some Russian friends said, well, you know, you talk about these guys as if they have a uniquely bad time, but we had a pretty tough time as well. So that was then me kind of filling in the other half of the, of the, of the diagram and saying, well, actually, yeah, Russia in, inflicted hell on, on these people in the Caucasus, but actually Russia kind of inflicted hell on Russians as well. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't entirely outward. And it was only, yeah, so there, but it was only in Ukraine in 2014 after the revolution there when I had this, you know, just because of conversations with activists and, and conversations with people and, and going to these various sort of palaces that belonged to the, the former president, that I had this sudden lightning strike of blatantly obvious realisation that actually, you know, maybe we're not the good guys. Yeah. You know, and that and that maybe the people who ruined these countries and, and, and made a fortune while they were bombing the hell out of Grozny and all that, maybe the people who stopped foreign alcohol being imported so that their state, you know, producers could make a fortune, maybe these people who then ended up putting their money in London and New York hadn't done it without help. And that was what Moneyland was about. It was this sudden realisation that actually the problem was a different league of problem to what I was thinking it was. It's not enough to just describe the symptoms of a disease. You need to describe the virus that's causing the disease. And the virus was this, I call it the dark side of globalisation. It's this this unimpeded movement of dirty money through the sort of back channels of the global financial system and in and the fact that this is happening undetected and the money is being spent on luxury property and luxury goods and because it's happening undetected and unpunished there's absolutely no reason anyone would stop all right well we zaglena zaglena well see you know and without the bottom of this bottle being any more expensive than the top mm. it's actually mellowing into a better vodka you think it's getting it's growing on you yeah well that's because i'm drinking more of it <laughs> You know, and this cheap alcohol has a way of um, just kind of climbing up the rank of uh, quality alcohols as you drink it. Mm. So that last sip is like an actually drinkable sip. Yeah. Well, but it's the 20 sips before yeah. then that... That, that just piled up. That, you know, they've been waging chemical I, war know. on your taste buds. Man, this is really going to fuck with the reputation of Scottish vodkas. Yeah, <laughs> with the already... Stellar reputation. I think they'll be fine. They've got such a strong reputation for vodka in Scotland. <laughs> Apparently, vodka is the most popular spirit in Scotland, and among consumers. Wow. That's one of those, you know, like trivial pursuit questions. You know, when they say, you know, which U.S. state has got the most money in the banks? You know, and, right. And then you think you're going to say New York, and they go, "Ha ha, no, South Dakota." It's like that. It is like that, except it's um, probably more depressing because you think of like, 
What what form of narcotic do Scots find even cheaper than the <laughs> the, the home produced whiskey than a home produced world class whiskey? Um, Glens. You lead something called the London Kleptocracy Tour, mm-hmm. which in in as you'd put it, you put people on a bus and show them around central London and maybe some other sites where where you were basically pointing out the geography of of graft um, in this. Uh, in this city in particular. And I thought it was interesting when Moneyland came out. It's a very attractive title. It's a very specific effort to create a firm kind of, I guess geography is the wrong word, but you're really creating a, a national presence around this sort of global financial criminal movement of dark money. So why why is Moneyland have to be a place? Like how, in what ways does it perform like, a, a, a nation, you know, what is Moneyland? I mean, the idea came to me in, you know, in a sort of flash um, because I was in a palace in Ukraine and that's kind of technically a hunting lodge, but more of a palace. Um, and it, it, it had belonged to the former president who had stolen this land and built himself a palace on it. And, and I had said something flippant to Anton, who was the revolutionary who was showing me around, you know, sort of along the lines of why do you let him get away with it? You know, how can you not have known what he was doing? You know, and and Anton had, had got quite cross, and and he he used this line. He said, "Look, look, the the palace. It's not it's not even in Ukraine. It's in England. Look it up. We couldn't have known." And and I looked it up, and it was amazing that the indeed it was the the ownership of the palace was owned by a company here in London at Twenty Nine Harley Street, and that was in turn owned by a company in Liechtenstein. In one of these sort of chains of offshore ownership of property that you get to obscure the involvement of a crook in in property. But it was that what he said. It's not in Ukraine. It's in England. That line that really got me thinking because it isn't obviously in England. It's not. It's you know it's nailed down in Ukraine, but it isn't legally in Ukraine either because you couldn't find out who owned it in the way that you could normally bits of Ukrainian property. So I got to thinking, you know, where is it? You know, if it's not in Ukraine and it's not in England, where is it? Um, and so that's when I said, well, it's in Moneyland. It was just a sort of a, a joke I created for myself. It's in Moneyland. It's in another country. But what's really interesting about once this idea appeared to me and this term Moneyland appeared to me, it just explained insane amounts of stuff. If you look at global financial statistics... You know, every country records investment into it and, and, and investment out of it. So the investments that its people and institutions make in other countries and the investment that other countries make in it, right? So there are, you know, whatever it is, 180-odd countries in the world. If you add up all of these numbers, they should equal the same amount, right? Because all the money going out of one country is inevitably money that's going into another country. So it all should cancel out above and below the line, but it doesn't. There is essentially it's it's like mars owns a chunk of earth there is a whole chunk of the earth that is missing from the statistics and this is is very weird and it is it is a function of the fact of offshore and, and the hidden ownership of, of, of about eight between eight and eleven percent of everything is hidden and and you know so someone if someone buys a passport from st kitts and nevis or from mont from um, malta or, or dominica or one of the many countries that they're not really a citizen of st kitts and nevis they never go there they don't you know they don't probably don't even speak English, they certainly don't speak it with a glorious, gorgeous Ketitian accent. So where are they really a citizen of? They're really a citizen of, of Moneyland, right? You know, so it's this thing of, of it, it just explains an enormous amount because essentially Moneyland is, is this 
when money moves freely but laws do not and you essentially have this pick and mix approach to legislation you get to pick my children will live in this country and they will obey those laws my money will live in this country and it will obey those laws i will be in this country i will obey these laws which means that that you're separating out different aspects of your life in in ways that most people can't afford to do right and and it's that you know the laws are whatever is most convenient to you at any time whatever circumstances you find yourself in those are the laws of moneyland because you can have a maltese passport and use english libel law well, I mean, to let, protect yourself let, i mean let's say you are a ex-soviet oligarch um, i've got a particular person in mind but i'm not going to mention him for legal reasons but if you are an ex-soviet oligarch and you have let's put it bluntly stolen your business empire you're very wealthy you've stolen it if you stray outside of your ex-Soviet country where you have a very significant amount of influence, you will probably be arrested and you will probably be prosecuted and you'll almost certainly be put in jail. So you're not going to stray outside that place. But you don't want your children to grow in that, live in that place because it's frankly a place that's been made shitty by people like you. So your children then live in somewhere in Western Europe and, and they live fine and they can get the citizenship there. And you don't want your money to be in the place that you've looted either because someone even scarier than you might come along and take it away. So you put your money... You know, you structure it via, you know, the Bahamas and St. Kitts and Nevis and Vanuatu and the Marshall Islands and into this great soup, which no one can ever, ever find. You know, so you've got that. And then your yacht is flagged from the you know, British Virgin Islands. Your plane is flagged in the Isle of Man. You know, it, it essentially every aspect of your life is compartmentalized and treated in by whichever jurisdiction is going to be most generous to that little bit of your life. And, and courts will, given your, you know, exceedingly fancy legal team, courts will also side with your right to bring a claim in their jurisdiction because whatever was written about you is online and will have inevitably been read at least once in, in Britain, for example. Well, this is the joy. So if you were to write about this gentleman in Time magazine in the United States, that is for sale in kiosks and, and news agents here in the UK. So... Obviously, they're not going to bring a claim in the U.S. because, you know, you, you, you have, you know, the protection under the Constitution and so on. But in the U.K., we have got very restrictive defamation laws, so you can bring that proceeding here. And you might not win, right? You might never win. But Mr. X has got hundreds of millions of dollars to throw at a legal case. You, Nathan, have got, you know, only tens of millions, right, from the Roden Kingdom's corporate credit card. You know, that... You know, if you've got hundreds of millions, it's like being playing poker. If I'm sitting here with one, two, with a hill of chips in front of me, and you're sitting there with a full house, I'm still going to beat you. Right. So you and I did have a full house. Um, oh, <laughs> I yeah. mean, to be very specific, like this oligarch who yeah, uh, yeah. shall remain nameless like Voldemort. You may have mentioned, noticed yourself in the story. I, I was in the story. I mean, no, actually, I'm. so I'm in the book in the role of an American editor who having taken a story uh, that Oliver had been working on from uh, a British publication that had decided not to run it. I feel like it was too legally risky. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was going to be an episode of this show. Yeah. Yeah, we this recorded was, a whole podcast. Yeah, this yeah. was going to be one of the first six episodes that we did before Bourdain died um, because it's a fucking cracking story. And like Moneyland, it's not more cracking than Moneyland. So you still have the opportunity to kind of go and get the full picture. But in Moneyland, it, it, part of the discussion is this singular story yeah. that that you had been working on that was made legally impossible, not just in the UK with its ridiculous libel laws, but also in the United States. Because one thing that is very possible to do in the United States is to sue somebody into submission. And that is that Roads and Kingdoms would 
I would have put the livelihoods of everybody that I worked yeah. with in extreme and immediate peril. And, and you know, we, we talked to our lawyers about this, you know, and, and did all the things that, that we wanted to, we said all the things we wanted to say about this particular story to the lawyer, that its importance, its relevance, its interest, its truthfulness, which uh, apparently is the least important. Yeah, yeah. it's totally irrelevant. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Completely irrelevant. And yeah. so it's this incredible world in which we live in which you have two professional journalists who want to see a story come to light and are absolutely, you know, unless one of us is near the end of life and has no family to consider. I mean, I mean, I, I don't even know the environment in which you would just be like, great, let me now sustain, you know, repeated violent legal assault from a Ukrainian oligarch. Well, it's funny. I, I've been thinking about, I was thinking about this the other day with a mate. We were getting drunk and another journalist who's had similar issues um, with some of Britain's more aggressive uh, defamation lawyers. And, 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 it, and I was slightly reminded by a comment that I got from a schoolboy when I did a talk at a school a little while ago. Who, who He hadn't said anything for the whole session. And at the end, he just put his hand up and said, Mister, if you know all this, why don't you just go and do it? And, um, you know, which is a really interesting comment. And I didn't really have an answer. I've been thinking about what my answer would be because you don't want to sound like all priggish. Oh, no, I couldn't possibly. Because it's, you know, it's about, I suppose, you know, what you value, you know, and, you know or whatever. But um, it did make me think, well, I could structure myself via, a, you know, a corporate, you know, like a, a limited liability company in Nevis, which is which is owned by a trust in the Marshall Islands or whatever. And you want to come at me? Get through that. You know, there you go. Find out who wrote the article. You know, it was written by, you know, Journalist LLC of Nevis, which is owned by Journalist Trust of, you know, the Marshall Islands. There you go. As it turns out, through your many, many travels, you know exactly the people who are regulating and organizing well, exactly this cloaking mechanism well, of which slightly, you speak. It slightly worries me. I, I went to a talk by, by the great Michael Lewis um, a while ago when he released... Um, the Big Short in the UK, and he did this talk. I'm a big, big, big fan of the way he he writes and, and the stories he chooses. And he was talking about Liars Poker when that came out in did it come out in the late eighties, early nineties about about the sort of boom, the finance boom. And you know he tended it to be like a, an expose and like a God, isn't this awful? And people came up to him years afterwards saying, "Man, you inspired me to be a banker. You're so cool." You know, and I did I did get a message on Twitter the other day from a bloke in India to saying, "You know, thanks, really, really." picked up a lot of tips you know and I, I mean it, it's like I don't know if he was winding me up or not I mean but he didn't seem to be you know he was like you seem you seem like a very an unusually straightforward guy and well I mean America has a very interesting and kind of slightly unique uh, corporate um, sort of residency law it's very strange and interesting I'm, I'm actually about to go to South Dakota um, uh, because South Dakota trusts have done terribly well in the last few years um since, since, since money stashed in South Dakota. That's right. They're they're they. I mean, they had how much money under well, management? I, I wrote up, this down actually. It's gone, up, it's, it's gone up actually since I wrote the book. It's about a it's about a quarter of a trillion dollars now. Yeah, it was two hundred and twenty six billion yeah, it's, by twenty fifteen. It's more than, than two hundred and fifty now. Um, under management in South Dakota. Yeah, yeah but specifically South Dakota and trusts. And the amazing thing about a trust, because you know, a trust is when you give money away, um, but. In the act of giving it away, you make a deal with the law firm that they will manage it as you want them to manage it. So though you no longer own it, it still obeys your wishes. It's kind of a zombie thing. Um, but it's very good because it means you no longer have to pay tax on it, right? You only pay tax on the income that arises from it. Um, but South Dakota passed this law um, 
which means that if you put money in trust in South Dakota, it stays in trust forever. It's not, if you put trust in, money in trust in the UK because of the common law, you can only keep it in trust, it's, it's about a century. It's not exactly a century, it's a slightly complex thing, but it's about a century. It's as long as anybody who was alive when plus, the trust was established, plus, plus 21. 20, 21 years. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, but, yeah. but in South Dakota abolished that, the law on perpetuities. And, and, um, and now if you put money in trust in South Dakota, it's in trust forever. And I don't think anyone's really thought about the, what this means, because... If forever is a really long time um and um you, know, you can imagine if you put something in trust i don't know like the roman emperor augustine had put like rome in trust in you know in sort of 40 a.d or whatever i'm not quite sure when he was alive whenever he was alive and like and, and his people still owned it all this time later that that's the craziness of it of, of you know imagine if if like some random dutch fisherman dude had put new york in trust when it was still new amsterdam and he still owned new york but all, but he didn't actually own it because it's all a legal fiction, and actually it was the that's the craziness of of what they're doing. And so there's this this con, the, the money land ratchet. I call, talk about it in the book, which is because because money moves around restlessly all the time, always looking for the best jurisdiction. There is an incentive in jurisdictions to pass laws to treat money better, always in one direction. You treat it better and better and better. You know, so South Dakota and Nevada have separate warring commissions that are constantly looking at each other. And Nevada will do something, and South Dakota will be like, "All oh, right," and they'll do it too, and then they'll do it, and they'll do it, and they'll do it, and so it just go down and down and down it's and a down. Race to the bottom. And there's no bottom. There is no bottom because because you don't it's a race toward a presumed bottom. That, yeah, that but does it's, not exist. You know, there's a, like there is no bottom because you can always treat it better. You can always tax it less. You can always give better benefits to the people who who, who come and give you money. So this is a really alarming proposition, actually, because inequality around the world is growing. You know, and, and if you think it's bad in the U.S., um, you know, in Russia, more than half of all the household wealth in Russia is owned by the top 1%, 51%. You know, about 80, it's not quite, eight, not, about 90, not quite 90, is owned by the top 10%, you know, which means that 90% of the population are left with less than 10% of the stuff. And you cannot build a democratic society on that basis. You just can't. You know, it, it will inevitably lead to power imbalances because, you know, you can mobilize so much resources. You know, money is just fossilized power. You know, if you've got that kind of wealth, nothing you can do about it. And I find it so alarming at the moment in the UK, we're discussing Brexit. You may have heard of it. Um, um, I've, I've come to examine your yeah. your Brexit um, uh, mores and culture. Yeah, good luck with that. Um, it's it's awful. Everything about it is awful, but mainly because it's stopping us from discussing things that matter. Um, because the basic endpoint of this, as far as everyone involved agrees, is that we'll end up in a situation very similar to where we are now. We just won't be in the European Union anymore. But it's taking us bloody years to get there. But all the time, there are all these things that matter, like inequality and tax evasion and climate change and all these things that genuinely are important. And we're not talking about them because well, we're talking about and, Brexit. I mean, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but as you had said in your book, Brexit was a natural, um, if if uh, very misshapen, response to a lot of the things that we're talking about, which is global inequality, a sense of you know, sort of this this uh, you know silent cabal who's kind of telling you how to live while giving you fewer options than your parents or your grandparents had. And the UK was at a point where it might have started to look into the structures of Moneyland, which you make a completely compelling and convincing argument, is what actually the levers 
cared about. Yeah. Like everybody who's pro Brexit, they want good livings n- near where they grew up. They want the same things their parents and yeah. their grandparents had. I mean, and that's impossible given this global flow of dark money uh, that exists in Moneyland and Brexit sort of like threw the whole fucking thing into disarray so that the thing they were trying to fix is even less yeah, I mean, likely to get fixed it's, now. It's really ironic because, you know, I can totally understand the motivation. I mean, I personally didn't vote for Brexit, but I totally understand the motivation of people who wanted to de-globalize or, or re-democratize this aspect of the of the world, you know, to say, no, we're going to reimpose control on these money, you know, take back control, as they said, on money flows. And actually, it's necessary, and I'm totally in favor of that. But... But sadly, the the EU, you know, this is a transnational problem and it requires a transnational solution. And the EU has to be a part of that solution because, you know, I'm looking at the other side of the Atlantic at the moment. I don't think Mr. Trump is very interested in in these issues. And so the EU, really important that it takes the lead. And, and the UK was a very important, you know, Are you sure it wasn't trip, Trump that sent you the note and was like, thanks for the tips? I mean, this is like a very... <laughs> I mean, I reading Moneyland in the in the Trump era, especially, is is a a a lot of it sounds familiar. You know, this kind of imperative that that money should just be able to go wherever it wants to go, however it wants to go. I mean, there's this pernicious word, wealth creator. You know, the wealth creators must be. It's just it's just bollocks. It really it's so annoying. There's there's this amazing book which I read recently by an American writer whose name I can't remember, an Andres something called Winners Take All. Um, which I really recommend if you've not read it, but it's about the way that, particularly since the 1990s, the kind of Blair Clinton era and the third way, that the the frame of discussion has been narrowed to such an extent that it's actually quite hard to conceive of things outside of, you know, the the frame that we are in. And it's And he describes that process and the way that this sort of there's always a private sector solution. There's always, you know, it, it's incredibly interesting book. And, and I found that this, this term wealth creator is a classic example of that. Because everyone's a wealth creator, right? If you go to the, the corner store and you buy, you know, a, a jar of gherkins, you've actually, you've created wealth. You've, you've moved money around in the economy. That's how wealth is created. Everyone's a wealth creator. So how come, you know, people who work for Bain Capital get to monopolize this term for themselves? We could have created a little more wealth when we picked out the vodka for the day. To be now. fair, yeah. I mean, that wasn't, no one. No one's wealth was, apart from Glenn, who I suspect is all right out of it. I don't think anyone's created much um, wealth. I mean, anyway, it's... All it, right. Well, so to that, let me propose, uh, let's do a final shot of this. Uh-huh. And then I'm going to talk London with you specifically. Oof. So I think it's. I think the bell curve has gone back the other way now. I think it's getting worse. No, I'm really. I'm really. I'm. I'm growing into this. Um, so. So London. You know, London is not the worst offender necessarily. There's really this kind of global chain. There's Miami, Vancouver, L.A., Sydney, Tokyo. These these kind of second tier, you know, kind of corruption cities. Uh, New York and London mm-hmm. vie. Um, very tightly for for number one spot yeah, is that always yeah i mean you know it, it essentially you've got you've got places that are conduits places that we think of as tax havens you know places like the, the british virgin islands um jersey they're often ex-british colonies or current british colonies you know cyprus malta singapore these kind of conduits really that money doesn't end up there money goes through there to be stripped of its identifying marks and then money goes somewhere else but they're a relatively small number of really top-tier wealth havens. And the very top ones are 
London and New York. That's so, so why London? I mean, I I know New York, and we deal with uh, we deal with this shit. I mean, I I compete in the rental market in New yeah. York housing, yeah. uh, as you had in London when you had still lived here. Um, so we we understand it from that level. But but give me give me the 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 brief version of of how London ended up being kind of you know graft central. I mean, a lot of it's about personal networks, to be honest. Um, you know, the, a lot of the, the the early movers in terms of kleptocracy were former British colonies, um, Nigeria in particular, Kenya. So a lot of these places, you know, they had the, the you know the financial connections to to, to London. Um, and once you've established yourself as a place with the kind of expertise to 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 you know what might be called corruption solution provision, you know, or something like that, if we were talking it in the term of you know like McKinsey, um, you know that. Once you've established yourself, you've got that that advantage. But also, you know, London's got a lot going for it. It's in a good time zone. We've got a solid legal system, which is well understood. We've got, everyone speaks English. It's, um, you know, got good galleries, great schools, great universities. It's a lot of factors that come together. And, and, and if you look at New York, it's exactly the same reasons in New York, right? It's a fantastic city. It's got fantastic galleries, amazing restaurants, you know, it, it's, There's so much to tickle the rich. Exactly. You know, because it's a real, and I'm being serious here. I mean, it sounds facetious, but I mean, serious. it's actually a real challenge to spend as much money as some of these people have got. Uh, there was an amazing article in the New York Times magazine the other day by a friend of mine, Ed Caesar, about, um, I can't remember which one it is, but one of the tech billionaires who devoted his life to finding shipwrecks after he made a fortune. And he, I think he started giving away like stupid amounts of money. And at the time he was worth $11 billion. By the time he died, he was worth $20 billion, despite the fact that he had been, you know, shoveling money out the door. This poor bastard. You know, can you, I mean, that's right. the thing. You just, Very expensive hobby, yeah, no that, sense. Yeah, and yet money and still, just... It just wouldn't like go away. You, you know, the interest the on the interest on the interest on the interest on the interest just won't. And it is so. So what can you spend that kind of cash on? A massive house in a really overinflated property market is a chunk of change. And then once you've got a massive house, think of all the stuff you can put in it. You know, you've got your Monet's, your, your Francis Bacon's, your all this. You've got your Picasso ceramics, right. your, your fine furniture. It's And then you can dig a massive basement and put a swimming pool in it. it it's a money sink. And, it, and that, I think, must be because there's one of the reasons, I think, why really rich people love buying football teams or sports teams in general, because it's just endless. And, and you know, and, and it's a civic duty to overspend yeah, and blow money. And, and also it makes you super popular. You know, it's this, amazing. There's that, too. You know, it's really interesting. This It's a challenge to spend money. And, and one of the reasons why, if you've stolen an absolute shit ton, metric shit ton of money in Equatorial Guinea, um, as, for example the ruling family, the Obiangs did, they went from being, you know, the butt of the jokes of junior employees in the World Bank to being literally richer than the Queen of England in eight years. Yeah, I mean, that, discover oil and steal it, it's a seriously profitable business, right? But they, all that money, they, they spent, they bought a mansion in Malibu, they bought, like, a mansion in, in Paris, like, an insane quantity of supercars, you know, all that. They didn't buy these things themselves. They didn't just turn up in Malibu and, you know, go knocking on doors with a real estate agent. You know, they had someone to do this for them. You know, that's the thing. Once you've got the money, you know, it, people find you and start encouraging you to spend it. And it's a really dispiriting situation that we're in because I, I think it, it, it really challenges our self-image that we have of ourselves in countries like Britain and America, particularly. Because I think, you know... You walk around in New York or London, great cities, 
probably the two best cities in the world. You know, amazing places, vibrant and multicultural and welcoming and generous and bloody good food. And, you know, where else can you, where can you get a better bagel than New York? And you know what? In London, we call them bagels and we think they're pretty good too. You know, but actually behind all of that, you've got this whole shadow economy going on and it's really depressing. And that's, so that's, yeah, that's Moneyland. Well, I think that that sensation of personal culpability in, in a system, even, I mean, even if you're not like actively transacting that system, but if you traffic in an understanding of the world that that system profits off of, which is, you know, what we had talked about is sort of looking down on Slavs or, you know, African dictators is just saying, well, this is somehow, you know, endemic to an undeveloped country or, you know, I think the statue had was something like $20 billion to a trillion dollars moved from the developing world to the developed world on an annual basis. Yeah, it's I mean, just it's, like pure theft. So that, I mean, that figure of a trillion dollars is, is calculated slightly more than a trillion. It's calculated by a think tank called Global Financial Integrity in Washington, D.C. And they look at, I mean, it's very complicated. Obviously, they look at lots and lots of facts and figures to come up with it. And it's obviously an estimate because, you know, it has to be. But if you have dark money, that's but a trillion dollars. I think this is a really interesting thing. A trillion, a billion, a million. Who among us really knows the difference, right? So, so if you had a million dollars, right, million dollar bills in a pile, and you settled down to count them, and you counted one a second until you were done, how long do you think that would take you? Days or weeks? Years? A million. Uh huh. That would take me a month. No, Eleven days. It's quite quick. Really? What about a billion? How long do you think that would take you? Eleven thousand days. Yeah. How, how much is that in years? I don't know. 33 years. So if, oh, well, if, okay. I'd had to, if I had a billion dollars and I'd wanted to count them, I'd have had to start when I was at primary school and when I was eight. What about a trillion dollars? That's the amount that's stolen every year. That would be 33,000 years. Uh-huh. So if the first modern humans to arrive in North America had started counting, the moment they'd set foot in Alaska, they'd be just over halfway. Get the fuck out. Yeah. It's a lot of money. Wow. And it just like, it completely unmoors you from money, from wealth, from this sensation of understanding what it is that you have accumulated and through what mechanism. There's this amazing book um, called Billion Dollar Whale by Bradley Hope and someone else whose name escapes me. Sorry, whoever it is, I will remember you and feel bad. It's about the 1MDB scandal in Malaysia, which was this astonishing uh, looting of a sovereign wealth fund. The money they spent on lots of things, the production of the Wolf of Wall Street and various other things. They laid on this unbelievable party in Las Vegas, like this insane, amazing mega party for the ages. And there's this great line in the book when there was a bloke there who'd been a convicted money launderer who was now a sort of media personality who went and he sat there, he looked at the party and was like, these guys never earned this money. Because if you earned it, you don't spend it like that. You know, no one who earns their money blows it on flying in, you know, the latest pop sensation to perform for 15 minutes and get earn, and earn $10 million for it. No one does that. Because you know how hard it is to earn $10 million. You know, you only do that if you've stolen it. So um, it's a real challenge. And actually, to be honest, what was really interesting about writing Moneyland was try. It's a book about accountancy, right? But trying to come up with ways of... of of telling the story of accountancy that isn't obfuscated. Because the problem with accountancy is they, like any high priests of any kind of religion, 
they deliberately make it bloody hard to understand what's going on. That you know, because everyone likes to have their own language that only they speak, because that's their you know secret source that prevents anyone else having access to their secrets. So how do you crack that open and tell? Frankly, the amazing stories. Like every single religion is privy to unbelievable stories, but they right. hide them behind Latin or 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 old church Slavonic, or behind things like limited liability partnerships and fiscal friction and all these obfuscatory circumlocutions. So, how do you come around? How do you get get around that? So, I was looking for these examples, and I found this unbelievable episode of of say yes to the dress, which is a a reality television program that, if you've not seen, I highly recommend. Um, it's based in a in a New York bridal boutique, um, where they sell very expensive wedding dresses to the discerning brides to be, and it's a great program. Actually, I quite enjoy watching it. It's 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 cracking telly. But they they did have this amazing episode called VIP Panina, in which Panina Tornai, who is an Israeli designer who who does dresses for them and sells them for them had three VIP customers who came in, one of whom was the daughter of an Angolan cabinet minister. And what was particularly bonkers about this episode, for me watching it, is the fact that, for me, trying to expose the fact that the daughter of an Angolan cabinet minister has spent $200,000 plus on clothes for her wedding, that is an investigative journalism hit. Like It's like, you know, the work you would do to do that. You know, can you imagine that the documents you'd trawl, the people you'd meet <laughs> under a bridge and take delivery of a packet? How to figure out that that was her and that was yeah, what she exactly. was spending. The... And, and she put it on television. You know, she did it on television and and presumably signed all the releases and and and, you know, you can see her trying it on and you can see her saying how delighted she is by the clothes and you can see on screen they rack up how much it all costs and this is how it's so normal for so will reality television save us it'll just be the rope that they need to hang themselves in this uh you know colossal global no to be honest i think it's i think that it's the it's the pustule on, on which shows the presence of the disease, I fear it's not going to save us. It's it's a symptom. I think the fact that it's become so normal now for the daughters of cabinet ministers from Angola or Ukraine or Azerbaijan or wherever to turn up and drop that kind of money at a shop in New York or London or Paris, you know, that you think about it so little that you put it on television, hmm. you know, that's amazing. I mean, that is properly bonkers. I mean, you know, in you know Angola, what, two-thirds of the population live below the poverty line? Like Africa's what certainly their top ten level of HIV incidence, and how much are you spending on wedding dresses again? And where did the money come from? Or well, we're not going to ask those questions, are we? Because thanks, we'll have the money. It's you know, it's really dark. How do you deal with being? A, you know, this is something that could be asked of anybody who looks into the global financial system as a journalist, which is, as we know, is a you know distinctly. At this point, kind of lower middle class existence yeah. um, and sliding, and sliding. I mean, you you live in in Hay, which Hay and Why, Hay and Why, uh, God's own country, God's own country, which is in rural England, uh, Wales. Excuse me, Wales, <clears throat> rural Wales, just <clears throat> just over the border. Actually, I, to my shame, I actually live in England. <sighs> I definitely did not mean to put you on the wrong side you, of the border. It's fine. It's you. You you othered me. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> there you are. So you. You're living somewhere, maybe Wales, maybe England. But, you know, this is like you're raising a couple kids. You have a wife who goes to work every day. You are, you know, like all journalists just treading furiously to maintain this existence. What I mean, like 
psychically, spiritually, what is it like to to be in possession of the knowledge of these incredible, absolute waterfalls of money that are crashing in all around you? Does it drive you to despair, rage? I mean, I'm, I'm quite lucky because I'm not actually that interested in, weirdly, considering what I write about, I'm not that interested in money, provided I've got a Spotify subscription and, and, a, and a car that kind of goes. And a luminary subscription. And, and a luminary subscription. $8 a month. $8 a month. Very the best. Very reasonably priced. Um, <laughs> Most diverse array of podcasts around. I've heard that, 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 that it's an amazingly diverse array of podcasts. Well, everybody listening to this episode will be subscribers. Yeah. And I yeah, think yeah, they yeah. are among the blessed. You know what? I don't, I'm not sure I'd use the word blessed. I use the word discerning to describe them. You know, so this is what I'm talking about. You have this big fucking brain. You could sell to the ultra rich. You could insinuate yourself. You could offer tips to your friend in India who hit you up and said, "How do I incorporate in Nevis?" Um, you know, there's a, but that sense is like as you start to peel away peel away the layers, you are starting to see the mechanisms by which people avoid daily toil. Yeah, but you know what. It's interesting, you get these these controversies about cultural institutions who've accepted donations from kleptocrats or whoever. People, you know, there was a... The London School of Economics took some money from the son of Muammar Gaddafi, which became a big thing, and then uh, Cambridge University took money from Dmitry Firtash, the Ukrainian oligarch who is currently fighting extradition to the US, so that might become a big thing, And though he says he didn't do anything wrong, obviously. Um and you have to wonder when you're taking money from these people, what is it you're actually selling, right? Because, you know, the amount of money that you get offered, I mean, I got offered by a, um, an, an arms company, improbably, to go and do a talk at their, um, they did sort of put on some event, and they offered me to go and do a talk. And I actually thought it'd be really interesting, right? I thought it'd be really fun to go and, you imagine all the fun people you'd meet at like an arms industry event. I thought How much money? Well, that, then they offered me £10,000 and I turned it down. Because you know, no one offers me £10,000 to go and talk anywhere. I'd do it for 200 Yeah. And provided you fly me over to Paris, wherever it was, like Madrid or something. You know, yeah, I'd do it for that. But, but give they, me two. They spooked you by the quality of the offer. Shit, yeah. I mean, who offers a, a freelance journalist £10,000 to do anything? You know, as, as an opening offer. Like, I'm like, no, I'm not fucking having that. Sorry. Um, and, and I think that's the thing. I think if, if someone offers you something which is amazing, you have to wonder what, what it is you're selling. Because I don't want, you know... To be honest, the thing about I mean, Moneyland, I'm describing a system that I profoundly d- disapprove of and disagree with. Right. You know, this, this is not fan fiction. This, this, is, is, this is, you know, right. I tried to describe it in an accessible and fun way. But I'm hoping that anyone who's going to come away with this book and think this is profoundly wrong, like that we've ended up in this situation accidentally without, you know, to coin a phrase, fucked up, right? And 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 then you're like, don't offer me money. Or if you are going to offer me money, offer me a shitload. <laughs> like millions. Oh, wait, so that was the problem with 10,000. Well, it was like somewhere million. in between 200 pounds, which is what you would have accepted. Yeah, well, like five, maybe five. Or two million pounds. I mean, I mean, two million, I'd have had a longer discussion with my wife about it. <laughs> Well, I turned it down and she whacked me. Just like, exactly how, how much did you weird turn down is today? this conference? Like, it's like, you know, she'd be like, how much money did you turn down today, you <laughs> asshole? You know, 
But no, I, I would have turned it down anyway, I hope. But then this is the thing. The, the thing is, I'm, I mean, this is the joy of living in a rule of law jurisdiction, go back to being boring and serious, because I can be offered, if, I mean, in the unlikely event someone offered me a million, a million pounds to go and speak somewhere and I turned it down, that's the end of the deal, right? If you're a policeman in Ukraine and someone offers you a million pounds to go and do something and you turn it down, you get killed. If you're a copper in Mexico, right? And you get offered, you know, a million bucks to look the other way. You right. know, that's not the end of the story if you turn it down. You, they, can, uh, they, you the, can pay in silver, you can pay in lead. Exactly. Which one, you know, how do you, how do you want to be paid? And it's not just about, because they're not going to, they're going to, they're going to keep you alive. You're useful to them. So it won't be, it be your children who will be paying in lead. So that's the problem. It's one of, we are blessed to live in a country with the rule of law where you can make these decisions on a purely, you can, you can say, you know what? I'm too moral to accept your well, your ten thousand pounds, you know, and you've got the choice, and that's that's something which we should be very aware of how fragile it is. Well, and and I think that gets back to that core point of these systems set these people up for moral failure yeah. in a way that, as long as we continue to believe that there's something about how they, I don't know how people just are deficient in democracy or deficient in accountability and that's just part of the culture where they come from as long as we believe that we'll never fix the system that we put in place that creates tremendous opportunities for people to be fucking people which is yeah. uh good yeah. sometimes yeah. terrible sometimes people to you know like you've got on your podcast people to just make great food people to make great booze people to fucking make great music or make great art or just just be themselves and have fun and not have to cross oceans because their country's been looted by assholes. It's just, it's very upsetting to me that people in the countries that where you could make a difference, by which is overwhelmingly the countries of the EU and the United States, that, that no one appears to notice what's really happening. And it, it does it, it, I find it very upsetting actually, because you know, there is an almost infinite amount of human potential out there. And everyone is the centre of their own universe. And think of the cool stuff they could be doing. But instead, they're having to negotiate $10 bribe with some traffic cop because he hasn't been paid for months because the money that's in the traffic cop budget has been stolen by the Minister of Traffic Cops and he's spent it on an apartment in New York. So let's stop him buying the apartment in the first place. And then... Who knows, maybe that person who had to stand in line for four hours to pay a $10 bribe, maybe that person instead of that will, will open a brilliant restaurant and will make a fucking shit-kicking taco. And then you and me can go and eat the taco and do a podcast about how bloody good it is. Wouldn't that be fun? Can you imagine, can you imagine if we could make that connection all the way down and that this is the taco that, you know, like, which came about? In 2014, a real estate transaction was uh-huh. thwarted which has resulted in a long, deep chain that left us with this incredible swordfish taco. Let's do it anyway, because I really like tacos. (laughs) And with that, we're going to go get some tacos. You made me say taco. Cheers, Oliver. Congratulations on your book. Even if it's all for naught, you are spitting into a glorious wind. Cheers, Glenn. The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. On this episode, Taffy Mukanyadze was our editor, Emily Marinoff, our producer. Alexa Van Sickle was our online editor. Music by Dan the Automator. Episode artwork by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. 
Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Special thanks to Jamie Lyons and the people at Luminary for helping us bring these episodes to life back then and helping bring them to the public feed now. To keep up with Oliver's work currently, please sign up for his Oligarchy newsletter, now a part of Coda Story, which is a new and vital in-depth digital publication that does tremendous work from around the world, but especially from Eastern Europe. I have put a link in the show notes. Next week on Thursday, the re-release of our previously paywalled episodes continues. We are back at the Bankside Hotel in London with Sammy Tamimi, Palestinian chef who has worked shoulder to shoulder with Yotam Odalengi for years and is a star in his own right. His new book with Tara Wigley called Palestine, a cookbook, is a gorgeous and delicious thing, celebrated around the world, and we talked about that and about London and about much, much more over Corner Store Prosecco. We'll meet you there. <laughs>